Welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast, the podcast where we interview Jewish philosophers, educators, and teachers in various topics in Jewish theology, philosophy, and Jewish thought. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit www.jewishphilosophy.com for more information. Enjoy! Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. Thank you very much. The title of this podcast is An Introduction to Halachic Man by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. So to begin, could you give us a bit of a you know, brief bio about yourself? Myself? Uh, I am a longtime Jewish educator uh, who's been involved in a whole variety of initiatives, uh, things related to teaching and learning and Jewish life and culture and literature. For the purposes of our conversation about Rabbi Soloveitchik, I'll say that I'm a graduate of Yeshiva University, which is, of course, an institution very closely identified with uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik. Uh, and uh, I am, for many years, the director of an organization in Jerusalem called Atid, which is the parent body of a project called WebYeshiva.org, which is exactly what it sounds like. Long before the rest of the world discovered Zoom, we've been teaching live, interactive, online uh, classes and courses and shiurim. As a matter of fact, I gave a, a long uh, series of uh, classes on Halachic Man, on Rabbi Salavitchik's Lonely Man of Faith, and uh, many of his other writings. And all of those courses are available in the archives of webyeshiva.org. Uh, in addition, I'm also the editor of the journal Tradition, uh, which is the Journal of Orthodox Jewish Thought published by the Rabbinical Council of America in the United States since 1958, since its founding by Rabbi Norman Lamb. And uh, we take particular pride as having been the platform uh, in which Rabbi Soloveitchik published a number of his very important English essays, including uh, The Lonely Man of Faith and uh, a number of others. And uh, readers can visit traditiononline.org to search in our archives to read Rabbi Soloveitchik's writings. And of course, over the years, very, very many scholarly essays exploring his thought can be accessed online at traditiononline.org as well. Okay, that's great. So let's get straight into it. So just for the first main question, who was Rabbi Soloveitchik? Who was he exactly? Uh, who was who was Rabbi Soloveitchik? That's the kind of question you can answer in in one sentence, or we could have a day long a day long seminar. But the very short answer to people who may be unaware, and of course, you know, a, a quick trip to the Google machine, you'll find plenty of biographical information about Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. Was born in 1903 in a small town in Pujan, what today is uh, Belarus, where his father was uh, where his father was uh, in the home of his grandfather, I should say. Um, and then they moved with their family uh, to a little town called Chaslovich, where his father was the the rabbi of the town. Uh, young Yosha Bear, as he was called, was sent off to Cheder, uh, but was found to be uh, not advancing properly. And his grandfather, the sainted sage rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, uh, also known as the Briskerov, instructed his father to remove him from that Cheder, that Jewish schoolhouse, and to study privately. So throughout most of his life, Rabbi Soloveitchik studied privately one-on-one -on -one with his father. And when I say studied, I mean principally studied Talmud um, and uh, was recognized from a very early age as being uh, an appropriate heir to this long line of tradition 
of Lithuanian Jewish uh, scholarship, uh, with which his family was distinguished. Um, and uh, at a certain point, he goes off in his early 20s to study first at what was called the Polish Free University, and then afterwards at the University of Berlin, where he studied uh, Neo-Kantian philosophy and did a PhD uh, on the thought of the philosopher Herman Cohen. While, while there, he meets and marries the woman who becomes his wife and his very, very uh, close uh, soulmate and partner in many of his works on behalf of the, the Jewish people. In 1932, they immigrate to the United States, and he ends up in Boston, where he becomes the rabbi of the community, and he founds a uh, he founds a Jewish day school, the Maimonides School, which still exists. It was the first Jewish day school in uh, in New England. And in 1941, when his father, who had preceded him to the United States, passed away, his father was the Rosh Yeshiva at the institution that becomes Yeshiva University, Yeshivat Rabbeinu Yitzchak Elchanan, and Rabbi the Younger, Rabbi Soloveitchik, uh, replaces him as the Rosh Yeshiva from 1941 on, and he commutes uh, every week from Boston to New York while Yeshiva is in session, continuing his role in Boston and becoming this uh, dominant figure, the dominant figure of American orthodoxy throughout the better part of the 20th century. Uh, the main line in his biography is not the books that he wrote and uh, not his leadership in other realms, although those are, of course, significant contributions, but the fact that for almost 45 years he taught uh, in Yeshiva University and helped mold uh, I don't know, two generations, two and a half generations of uh, American rabbis, first and foremost, uh, the young men who were being trained to become rabbis to go out into the American rabbinate uh, in synagogues and schools and other types of uh, leadership, and where he became the undisputed premier uh, figure, uh, rabbinic figure, halachic figure, intellectual figure, philosophical figure within American orthodoxy, within the movement that came to be called modern orthodoxy, a movement that uh, identified him as its leader, although a movement with which he was sometimes critical and sometimes did not completely uh, identify even as he understood his his role in leading that. Over the years, he published in his lifetime very little, but there were a number of particularly important essays that uh, that were published. His his main form of communication was through the spoken word. He delivered uh, dresses and speeches and sermons, sometimes in front of uh, standing room only crowds of hundreds of people, uh, very often in Yiddish, which was, of course, his mother tongue um, and which he was particularly fluent, but uh, in his very rich and uh, ornate and articulate English uh, as well. And he published both in Hebrew and sometimes in English, and very much more things that he said, oral addresses that he delivered, were then written up by others, either with his review or without his review, and were published and became part of the written record. The most important essays that were published in his lifetime were the one we're discussing uh, this evening, Halachic Man, which was first published in Hebrew in 1944 and only translated into English by Professor Lawrence Kaplan in 1983 with Rabbi Soloveitchik's guidance and involvement in the translation. I should mention that although that one edition of, of Halachic Man, which has been you know the edition all these years, it, it is slated to be republished uh, soon 
in the next year or so in a revised and expanded edition uh, from the Jewish Publication uh, Society. So students of Rabbi Soloveitchik and Halachic Man are looking forward to that. And then I would also mention his very important essay, The Lonely Man of Faith, which again can be found on the website of uh, traditiononline.org, uh, um, which uh, we can talk about perhaps on another occasion, uh, The Lonely Man of Faith. It's debated which is the more important essay. They're very different in scope. Um, Lonely Man of Faith was written in English. Um, and it was first published, as I said, in the journal, and years later published in standalone uh, book form. Um, there are all types of other uh, stations in his biography that uh, we're going to skip for now. Unfortunately, towards the end of his life, failing health uh, caused him to not just retire, but to kind of uh, remove himself from the public stage uh, in 1985. And uh, he passed away in 1993. After uh, his death, he's had a long, a long afterlife, uh, because the Torah Tarav Foundation, uh, under the guidance of his his family and heirs, have published more works posthumously than he did in his own in his own lifetime. Both manuscripts he left behind, transcripts of uh, lectures uh, that were either recorded or were preserved in his lecture notes have been published, and that has uh, added to the increase of our ability to interact with his ideas, and certainly for those that will come in the generations ahead, we'll know him through those through those writings. Okay, so thank you for that. So just let's talk about the title a second, just so we can introduce our reader, our, reader, our listeners uh, straight into it. Um, what exactly does Rapsolovitchik mean by halachic man? What does he mean exactly by that? Uh, that's a good, it's a good question to focus on the, on the title itself. Halachic man, of course, is the man of halacha. Uh, for those that may be unfamiliar, halacha is a, is a Jewish term, a rabbinic term for, uh, for the body of Jewish law. Uh, but halacha has different meanings. And the meaning of the title of the book is, I, I think, sometimes, sometimes, um, misunderstood. Uh, halacha is is Jewish law. So, for example, uh, if uh, if uh, if I've eaten a meal, I'm required to recite the grace after meals, benching as we call it, birkat hamazon. And the birkat hamazon needs to be recited within a certain time frame from having finished my finished my meal. I have to recite the grace. Uh, well, what if I can't remember? Uh, whether I've said the said the uh, the grace after the meal, what if I can't remember how much time has passed, and I don't know if the maximum amount of time has passed or not? I'm in a situation of doubt, so I might turn to my rabbi or I might turn to a more uh, learned friend, and I might ask him, "What's the halacha? What is the normative rule here for that should guide my behavior?" So that's what I'll call halacha with a lowercase h. Many people misinterpret uh, the title to think that halachic man is the man, or I should say the person. There's nothing at all in the, in the book that would indicate uh, that the halachic man is a personality limited to men and not to women. It was the gendered language of the day in which he, in which he wrote. Um, women can be halachic uh, women just as much as men can be halachic men. And really, it might be called today a more, a more, uh, 
a more PC author today might call it the halachic personality or the halachic person. Um, people misunderstand a title to mean the man of halacha, meaning a person who is punctilious in his observance. Now, this ideal type that he portrays is clearly someone who is careful about their ritual uh, and religious obligations. But that's not what he's talking about. Because halacha has a more expansive meaning beyond the 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 guiding normative law. Halakha, what I'll call halakha with a capital H, is a synonym that Rabbi Salavechik often used for the entirety of the 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 Jewish worldview. What some other authors might have said, the Torah says. You know, uh, you might have heard a sermon here or there where a rabbi gets up and says, the Torah says, dot, dot, dot. And you can search all day from beginning to end in your Hebrew Bible, or if you go online to one of those databases, and not find what the rabbi said the Torah said. Because when the rabbi said, the Torah says, he doesn't mean I am now going to quote you a verse from the Bible. He means I'm going to give you a message which I think represents what the Torah means, what its what its message to us is. Other people might say Judaism believes, which is of course uh, a tricky a tricky uh, uh, affirmation because Judaism is not a person that believes something or doesn't believe something. Judaism has certain core beliefs, and uh, even many of those are debated amongst uh, amongst uh, legitimate philosophers, even. So for Rabbi Soloveitchik, instead of using the term Torah or using the term Judaism, uh, he uses the term halacha because he identifies the Jewish legal body, uh, the, 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 the entirety, let's say, of the rabbinic bookshelf with the Talmud in pride of place as the authentic voice of the Jewish worldview. So when he says halachic man, he means the person who most authentically embodies this this Jewish worldview as defined and distilled in the halachic literature. Again, principally the Talmud, but not but not only. So by calling him the halachic man, he's putting forth a typology, an ideal a version of the practitioner of 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 Judaism he did this in many of his essays he explored ideas through the creation of these distilled essential personality characters the halachic man the lonely man of faith uh, and and many other many other such examples where he tried to like boil down in ideal to a personality type and by kind of calling this personality type uh, onto the stage and and presenting him to us and and discussing him and trying to get at his essence he he was communicating in a much more um perhaps much more engaging way than speaking in a kind of abstract philosophical ideal uh, because these were these were ideal types that we could relate to that we could think about, that we could look for as as models in the real world and amongst people that we knew in the real world. Even though, 
you know, it's probably hard to come by these ideal types because in, in the real world, people are a little more complex. But the idea that you could take the human personality or the religious personality and put it into some kind of centrifuge and spin it around until you got a, a pure ideal type um, is for the purposes of a philosophical presentation, uh, a very engaging manner to, to put ideas forward. So halachic man is one of three such typological characters that, uh, that serve, uh, that are uh, playing on the stage of this particular work. And halachic man is the hero as opposed to the other two, is the ideal as opposed to the other two two characters. And that's the way that he presents what he thinks is this idea. Although at the end, he admits that, you know, it could be that these people are few and far between in the ideal. Uh, and it could be that he's discussing a specific, he has in mind maybe, specific figures from his own family. His, specifically his grandfather and his father and his uncle, the the, the later briskerov of Yitzchak Zev Soloveitchik of, of, uh, of Jerusalem, uh, who was the only one who was still alive when the essay was first composed in 1944. Um, and it's also possible that even though on his tombstone in Boston, it says that Rabbi Soloveitchik was the Isha Halacha, that he was the Halachic man, uh, it, it, it could be that he does not personally identify or at least not completely identify with this character the halachic man in in my reading of the essay uh, i've spoken and written a bit on this topic i hear places where rabbi soloveitchik has a very respectful disagreement with halachic man this this idealized character that he presents in which he admits that he does not fully identify with the character. There are aspects of the personality of the halachic man that he does not see in his self. For a much more autobiographical presentation of Rabbi Soloveitchik's um, religious identity, I, I direct the listener to The Lonely Man of Faith, which is an explicitly uh, autobiographical uh, work. But that doesn't take away from the presentation that he makes in in Halachic Man of a particular ideal of so can Jewish we talk life. a bit? You mentioned before about these uh, two different sorts of people, and then we have Halachic Man as sort of the ideal. So who are these two different people who is who who Halachic Man sort of mediates? The the other two the other the other two characters in the work are uh, figures called in in English they're called cognitive man, the kind of scientist, uh, mathematician, uh, a physicist, uh, and homo religiosus. Rabbi Soloveitchik would sometimes use Greek and Latin terms. He thought it lent a kind of dignity to his uh, to his presentation, particularly at that time. When Orthodox Judaism in the United States did not uh, did not suffer from an excess of uh, dignity in the eyes of uh, in the eyes of the world, um, today we we might you know write our essays uh, in a different register, but that was the style of of his day. So that character, Homo religiosus, religious man, religious man. Um, in Hebrew, there's a pun because the cognitive man is called the Ish Hadat the man of knowledge or wisdom, and the religious man is called the Ish Hadat, 
they're they're two homonyms near homonyms um uh the pun doesn't work in in the translation uh so we have cognitive man and homo religiosus a religious man cognitive man is a kind of like i said a kind of scientist the scientist is 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 fascinated by the physical world in which he lives he is um tasked he is challenged he is he is um uh, almost intoxicated with the desire and need to understand the the physical world uh that that surrounds him uh, this is presented as a very high ideal uh, the other characters are not anti-religious the other characters are not anti-intellectual uh the other characters are each lacking something that is gained by the personality of halachic man who stands kind of above them the the homo religiosus the religious man on the other hand i mean what what could be wrong with a religious man don't we all aspire to be religious men and women well it's a religion of a certain variety it's um it's it's a religious personality who is unlike cognitive man who is focused on this world religious man is focused almost exclusively on the next world he sees this world as a, the veil of tears he sees this world as a world of suffering he sees this world as a world in which we are are tempted because we are we are incarnate we are created with flesh and with desires that often distract us from the spiritual and he wants to transcend and, and escape this world into the world shakulotov the world which is which is holy good which is holy which is holy uh, spiritual so Rabbi Soloveitchik, after at some length uh, describing and introducing these two uh, typological characters explains that halachic man is uh, a, although he shares aspects of each of these characters he differs from each and in his difference you can find what is unique about him let me maybe perhaps if i just read a passage from the very beginning of the essay he says on the one hand halachic man he is as far removed from homo religiosus as east is from west and is identical in many respects to prosaic cognitive man in other words there's an irony because in many ways halachic man is closer to the scientist now the scientist we might think of as some people write about this and present the scientist as the atheist that's not true the scientist is not the atheist right atheism is a is a is a position vis-a-vis the divine the cognitive man seems to be completely unaware of god he is so focused on this worldly that he can't think of the beyond it doesn't occur to him that there's anything outside of this physical realm again because we're talking about kind of purified personality types it's not useful to think about actual real people of course we all know scientists and mathematicians and physicists who are people of faith uh, and we also all know religious people profoundly religious people who are very much engaged in this world um it would be hard to actually find characters who correspond because we're all a little bit this and a little bit that 
we have we recognize all of these different traits in our own real life personalities but again that was my uh, metaphor of the centrifuge where we could like separate the different aspects of personality into their pure pure forms so he goes on to say in, in many ways that's the irony that uh, for Rabbi Soloveitchik that in many ways halachic man is closer to the scientist than he is to the religious man well we have to understand well who is this religious man on the other hand he says he is a man of he halachic man is a man of god he's the possessor of ontol, of an ontological approach that is devoted to god and of a world view uh, of a world view saturated with the radiance of the divine presence he is no halachic man is not the scientist who doesn't look heavenward on the contrary he's he's drunk he's saturated with uh with uh with uh, the divine presence uh, front and center in his worldview. For this reason, it is difficult to analyze halachic man's religious consciousness by applying the terms and traits that descriptive psychology and modern philosophy of religion have used to characterize the religious personality. Here he's he's probably uh, speaking out against uh, William James and a kind of neo-Kantian uh, religious philosophy that uh, that he was exposed to through the study of Herman Cohen. And then he goes on to say, in some respects, halachic man is a homo religiosus. In other respects, he's a cognitive man. But taken as a whole, he is uniquely different from both of them. Right, he stands astride them both, like a colossus. He he has aspects that he shares with each of them, but he is in fact very different than both of them. Perhaps in a different conversation we can talk about how this works. There's a similar structure in Rabbi Soloveitchik's work, The Lonely Man of Faith, and to our listeners who are new to this whole conversation who want to read some of Rabbi Soloveitchik's writings, I would suggest starting with The Lonely Man of Faith before you get to Halachic Man. And even before you get to to either of them, I would recommend a particular essay called Majesty and Humility by Rabbi Soloveitchik, which is freely available, again, on the website of tradition. It was an essay that was published in in the 70s, which is a very good primer to some of these themes. Uh, these were ideas that he played with over many years, and he wrote them, and he rewrote them, and he used these ideas in different, in different, uh, in different manners. While we're speaking uh, bibliographically, I should also mention there's an excellent book by the same title. Rabbi Soloveitchik has this important essay called Majesty and Humility, and there's a book uh, authored by my close friend, Rabbi Ruvain Ziegler, called Majesty and Humility, the Thought of Rabbi Soloveitchik, which is an excellent uh, and eminently readable introduction to Rabbi Soloveitchik's life and thought and essays. It's almost a, a reader's guide to some of his most important essays. And of course, Halachic Man is uh, is in it. So this question of how Halachic Man stands astride these two other characters does he synthesize them into one is it more of a is it more of a, a dialectic in which the two remain in tension this is something that philosophers have been uh, debating since the essay has, has come about uh, uh, what's interesting is that rabbi Soloveitchik seems to 
seems to approach this question of how to deal with the contradictions in in existence, in religious life, in religious worldviews, in different ways, in different essays. Um, in The Lily Man of Faith, he takes a much more um, dialectic uh, approach, that the, the, the two sides that are standing in opposition in that essay, which don't exactly correspond to the model here, even though there's some overlap, they remain in tension. That tension is built into is built into into existence. In halachic man, it seems that this halachic man stands not in opposition to cognitive man and religious man, but stands, like I said, astride them and has achieved some kind of Hegelian synthesis. Uh, you know, Hegel was the German philosopher. Hegel was very uh, uh, you know, if we have to put him on one foot, we say Hegel taught about thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? That we take the opposing forces and we find a way to synthesize them together. And it's uh, much more likely that halachic man is a kind of uh, uh, synthetic worldview of these other opposing opposing uh forces but we've gone a little we've gone a little astray uh in in uh explaining these but it's only a, a brief summary um how the religious man would um you know see reality in certain ways different to halakhic man one of the examples that absolvation gives is how he approaches the topic of death um, can you explain how religious man looks at death versus the way halakhic man looks at death well, that's that's a wonderful example because it's a way in which um, it's a way in which halachic man is closer to cognitive man than to religious man. Um, the religious man here is a type of spiritualist. I mean, it, re, the the religious man in this abstract is not a practitioner of any one particular religion. Uh, you read it; it sounds almost there's something Christian about him, but it certainly is also there are aspects of 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 Jewish uh, practices and worldviews, not necessarily the ones in which Rabbi Soloveitchik was raised, uh, mind you. Uh, but he's you know, a religious man is neither Jew nor 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 Christian nor nor Muslim nor Buddhist. He's, this aspect of religion uh, that can be found uh, in all faiths. Here, he's a spiritualist. He he is disturbed by he is disturbed by uh, as I mentioned by by the physicality of this world. Where cognitive man seeks to understand this world, he's in love with this world. He 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 he's trying to explore it. He's the scientist. He's the observational scientist. Many of Rabbi Soloveitchik's, possibly because of his own academic training and his own interests, many of the examples that he brings uh, are examples from again the world of mathematics, the world of f- physics, um, where the idea that by looking at the world, the physical world, through a kind of abstractification, we can come to a deeper understanding of its actual physicality. Um, and that's something that the cognitive man, the halachic man, share. I'll come back to that momentarily. But the religious man sees this world as, as polluting as as distracting here we certainly hear things that we often identify with christianity rabbi salavechik thought that that was rabbi salavechik channeling the halachic man uh 
uh, although in this regard he certainly identifies with this particular aspect of the halachic man's worldview, uh, says that, that that is incorrect. God chose to create us as physical beings. It's the great paradox of existence. This is a, by the way, I should say a, a significant theme throughout his writings, not just here. That if God created us uh, as animals, we are animals, we are flesh, right? We have bellies that want filling, we have bodies that want clothing, we have desires uh, to, 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 to find a mate, to procreate, right? These are things which certain religious traditions view as as uh, as dangerous in the extreme, as distracting, as polluting. In other faith traditions, they are the kind of result of original sins that uh, have attached themselves to the personality of humanity. Rabbi Soloveitchik, halachic man, disagrees with this. If God chose to choose, if God chose to create us in this manner, in this world, there was a purpose. If we have these desires, they therefore cannot be inherently bad or evil. They are, however, strong. And the challenge, the paradox of mankind to be both created an animal, but to also be tasked with aspiring to be godlike is to find a way to to channel those desires, those drives. And the halachic man sees in the halacha the redemptive channel to do that. So Judaism doesn't think that uh, we, except for very, very uh, minor trends in Jewish life and thought, Judaism was always anti-ascetic. Historically, you can always find exceptions to this rule. But if you take Jewish law and life and thought, you know, over the millennia, Judaism always had an anti-ascetic virtue. The Rambam, Maimonides in particular, felt very strongly that the ascetic uh, people who who think that food and and drink and worldly pleasures and and sexual pleasures were were inherently uh, polluting were, were things to be avoided uh, if at all possible uh Judaism always uh, looked at that attitude with a very jaundiced eye because this is how God created us however that we shouldn't let those desires overtake us they have to be channeled. They have to be reined in. And that is a very significant agenda in the halachic project. We believe one should eat and enjoy uh, his food, but we, not everything. We don't eat this. We don't eat that. We don't eat this unless it's been slaughtered in that way. We don't eat this together with that. We don't eat that within a certain period of time after we ate the other thing. There's certain days of the year, at least biblically one day of the year, rabbinically other days, in which we don't eat at all. There is such a concept of fasting, but we don't turn fasting into a virtue that in an ideal world we would fast every day. Judaism has a very sex-positive attitude, but it's not everything goes. We are not libertines. We are not countercultural in that regard, right? A sexual sexual union 
can be a beautiful and pleasurable thing within the bonds of marriage, guided by all types of other halachic uh, mandates and, and regulations, which we which we won't go into. But the the idea that the sex act itself is something that uh, would best be avoided, that the holier members of our congregation would abstain completely from sexual relations, that is not uh, the Jewish worldview. So in that regard, uh, halachic man is, is much closer to cognitive man. He's very this-worldly focused. And that brings us to the topic of the fear of death, which you, which you mentioned. Halachic man, Rabbi Soloveitchik says, has a fear of death. Religious man, homo religiosus, desires death because death will be the escape from this world, from this veil of tears. It will be the escape from this physical form, which is nothing but a stumbling block in our path to spirituality. Halachic man sees death as 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 being removed from the world of mitzvot. The mitzvot, the commandments were given to us in this world. Of course, you know, there's that very well-known rabbinic midrash about uh, the Torah. When God uh, wanted to give the Torah before he gave it to the Jewish people, uh, the angels said, why are, you, why are you giving it to them? They're just going to mess it up. They're just going to break the rules. Give it to us. We're angels after all. And God says, well, you know, in the Torah, it says, you know, you can't eat non-kosher food. Is that going to be a problem for you angels? And they say, no, not, not a problem for us at all. We don't eat. We're angels. We're, we're pure spirit. And God says, well, you know, in the Torah, it says, you know, uh, these types of sexual relations are forbidden. Is, is that going to cause you any, any aggravation? And they say, no, it's not a problem because we don't, we're spiritual beings. We don't, that's not for us. We, we won't, we'll never mess it up. So God says, good, the Torah is not for you. The Torah is meant to be actualized. The mitzvot are meant to be actualized in the physical world that I created. It's meant to be the guidebook for how the spiritual being can live in a physical world, can live with his or her physical desires and appetites, can live with his ego, can live with the, 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 the tensions of being together in society and with fellow man. That's what the Torah is about. So it's, it's the Torah itself is this worldly, and death is the thing that removes us from that. And so yeah. that's one so example. One, I mean, of, one thing I was just thinking about when you were mentioning that was um, one of the benefits, as it were, of the religious man is that he's able to, through his passions and through his, maybe you can call it, the, 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 the passions that Christianity talks about, you're able to connect to God in a very spiritual and very otherworldly way. How exactly does halachic man connect to God? It sounds like he's um, having to follow these fixed rules, but where's the passion? Where is the um, connection to God uh, for halachic man? Well, <laughs> you you touch upon a, a particular um, sensitive nerve, Um uh, this worldview, halachic man, is very much at home a, and, and is very much a product of what we think of as the, the Lithuanian yeshiva world, which in its kind of reduced stereotype form is uh, hyper-rationalistic, super-intellectual, and even a little bit in Yiddish, uh, we would call them kalta litvaks, 
cold Lithuanian Jews, emotionally cold, uh, that is. And there's no doubt that that's, that's one. There are actually some stories in the Halachic Man about this kind of uh, emotional frigidity as, a, as an ideal. Uh, this is something, by the way, that I think Rabbi Soloveitchik does not, I think this is the point that he does not completely self-identify with. But there's no doubt that this is a stereotype of a particular uh, rabbinic, uh, uh, Lithuanian, uh, intellectual rabbinic uh, model. Um, so where he finds spirituality is in study, is in learning. Because l- studying, again, principally the Talmud, the rabbinic texts, but principally the Talmud, studying Torah is the window into the divine. And then actualizing it in this world is its, is its fulfillment. The performance of the mitzvot in this world is the fulfillment of the divine will. And that's something, although we might not you know, uh, uh, sit on the floor with a guitar or dance around the bonfire, uh, nevertheless, that is something that's deeply spiritual because it's the manner in which the halachic man can fulfill his role in this world of, of, of bringing godliness here. That's the essential difference. A religious man, religious man wants to ascend to heaven. Halachic man wants to bring heaven down here to the earth. A moment ago I mentioned this idea of the, the mathematician, the physicist. Sometimes when I'm discussing this part of the, the book, I use the example of the architect. Um, I, I remember I, I seeing years ago a, a, an old movie or something like that. I don't remember what it was, but the the image stays with me of an architect who who goes out to the world and he looks at the the barren hillside that he wants to build his uh, his 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 uh, building, his house, his mansion, his on, and he sees. The building, and it's as if as if we superimpose the blueprint onto the reality. In other words, the special effects of the film were able to do that. He was able to see the 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 finished product or the ideal, uh, you know, in the in the same way that um, that a great composer, uh, Mozart, uh, Beethoven, uh, can hear the music not by humming it. But by looking at the notes on the page, he can hear the music in his head. Right? You can take the abstract and find the concrete behind it. So just like the mathematician can look at the physical world and extrapolate mathematical principles, so the physicists can look at at the physical world and extrapolate. You know, there've been how many times, you know, did we see film strips in school where they're trying to explain gravity? I remember first year physics in, in high school, a film strip where I, where where uh, Newton is sitting under the tree, the apocryphal tree and the apocryphal apple that falls on his head and he intuits uh, the laws of gravity. But in the film strip, what you saw was, you know, kind of the formula you know the, the the dotted line of how the apple falls and the rate at which it falls and the angle and all the all of that was like superimposed above the head of this uh, this actor who kept having an apple dropped uh, on 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 him uh, throughout the filming of this uh, this movie I suppose so that's a little bit what the halachic man does you know in a very uh, well known passage in the halachic man 
he describes how halachic man, here it's, it's autobiographical because he's talking about his father, he's talking about experiences that he had with his father, that uh, the halachic man is, is fo- like the cognitive man, is focused on this world, is focused on the observation of the world of nature. And he describes this beautiful, he's a young boy, and late in the afternoon on Yom Kippur, his father takes him by the hand out into the synagogue courtyard, and he points to the setting sun off in the western horizon above the trees, and he says, you see that sunset? So most people look at the sunset, it's a beautiful sunset. This is, that sunset is different than all the other days of the year. That sunset has a halachic difference. And if you don't see it, you're missing something in nature. Because with that sunset, with the passing of the day of Yom Kippur, comes atonement. Right? There's a halachic reality embedded in nature. And then he gives other examples about looking at a pool of water and seeing a mikvah, looking at a, a physical structure or a hillside and seeing an eruv, different other physical halachic uh, realia that exist in our in our tradition. Right? That when you when you look at the world, the halachic man sees it through a different set of set of spectacles. He sees the halacha actualized in in this. In this world, in that regard, he halachic man is much more of the cognitive man than he is the the religious man. As a matter of fact, Rabbi Salavechik kind of indicates that religious man, and again, the irony should be obvious that Rabbi Salavechik is is kind of aligning himself more with the scientist than with the religious man. Asterisk, we have to define what type of religious man this is. But you would think, you know, a multiple choice test before you uh, know anything about this work, you know, would we think that the religious man is better than the scientist? Well, most people would say yes. But in reality, although he, he recognizes that there are aspects of both within each of us, he seems to identify more closely with with the cognitive man, even while he has a very significant critique on the cognitive man, because the cognitive man has no spiritual aspirations. Halachic man, after all, still is a man of God, still has a desire to connect to God. But he does so by bringing God, heaven down to earth, instead of trying to escape earth up to heaven. But Rabbi Salavechik has a critique. There's a reason he can't be a homo religiosus, why he must be a halachic man. He thinks that uh, homo religiosus is, uh, this, I'll skip ahead, this is on page 41 of the essay, he says, homo religiosus, his glance, fixed upon the higher realms, forgets all too frequently the lower realms, meaning this world, and becomes ensnared in the sins of ethical inconsistency and hypocrisy. See what many religions have done to this world on account of their yearning to break through the bounds of concrete reality and escape to the sphere of eternity. They have been so intoxicated by their dreams of an exalted supernal existence that they have failed to hear, and then he lists things, the sigh of the orphan, the groans of the destitute. There is nothing so physically and spiritually destructive as diverting one's attention from this world. It's important to remember the essay is first authored or published in 1944. One cannot one cannot uh, read these lines and not be aware they, and not be mindful of the fact they were composed 
in the midst of in the midst of the Holocaust. There is here a critique of a religious tradition that uh, did not hear the cry of those who were being gassed and murdered and incinerated by the millions uh, and ignored those those cries. So that's a critique that he has on homoreligiosis, that he who is exclusively focused on the next world tends to be um, unmindful, un, un, unconcerned with things that go on in in this world. In a different, very important essay called Coldo Dido Fake, which is often read, it's translated variously. There are two translations of it, but it's translated sometimes. The kind it's Coldo Dido Fake is a, is a verse from the Song of Songs, um, and it's translated as uh, rather clunkily as uh, "Hark, the voice of my beloved knocketh." Um, it's often known for being his most uh, ardent. Um, exploration of the meaning and significance of Zionism and the modern state of Israel. But before he gets to that, there's uh, his most explicit treatment of the topic of theodicy, of why the righteous suffer. And there's a discussion of the book of Job. And uh, among other things that he says, I'm boiling it down to one sentence, of course, and there's much more, uh, and you should read it there. It's an essay that was published in Hebrew, but again, it is available in two different translations. He says that the question of why the righteous suffer, the question of why God could have allowed the Holocaust, uh, all of these types of things, they're serious questions. But they are also unanswerable. And since they are unanswerable, sometimes they can be spiritually distracting. People that get so focused on why God let this happen tend to put less energies into what is my responsibility in this world to help alleviate the suffering or to help prevent it from happening again. So you see echoes of these ideas from halachic man later, a decade plus later, in, in other treatments and in other, in other, um, in other contexts. He, he's also critical of homoreligiosis because he thinks it's just not possible. Right. Man, because he is created in physical form with all of the accompanying aspects of what it means to be to be a mammal, cannot ever become abstract spirit. And again, the, the, the whole neg- attempt to negate who we are, how we are, how we are created is is uh, is a fool's game. Since God created us this way, presumably this was his plan for creation. So therefore our task is is to sanctify the mundane, to make this world holy instead of trying to find instead of trying to find uh, an escape hatch. He he also seems to be saying that ultimately all we have is this world. In this world, all we have is this world. In the next world, when we ultimately do die, when we go on to wherever we go on to, to whatever form will be re- resurrected in the messianic era, 
We'll find out when we get there. He does not deny that. But in this world, which is the only world that we know, ultimately, we can't ever fully access the divine. Our best window into it is through the study of Torah. Lo machshavotai machshavotechem, says the prophet Isaiah. God's manner of thinking, his manner of working the world is ultimately not completely knowable to us. And therefore, as Maimonides points out, aside from the study of Torah, we have this world. This world itself, the world, the natural world, is uh, is a text. It's a text to be studied. And if we appreciate it properly, we can come to a deeper and fuller understanding and appreciation of of God in this world. And since since uh, the intellect, the abstract intellect, has these limitations, therefore, by definition, we all have to be cognitive men. In other words, he's, there's an irony here. The cognitive man, the character presented in halachic man, is not looking at nature in order to get to the divine. But he's saying, unless we're all a little bit cognitive men, we can't get to the divine anyway. Right? It's a, it's a sure path. It doesn't happen automatically. Going out for a, a hike in the, uh, in the Swiss Alps does not ipso facto bring you to a deeper love of God. Right? We know many people who are great naturalists and great sportsmen and mountain climbers and Arctic explorers and they see the aurora borealis uh, up in the Arctic and they do other types of things and they don't necessarily become much more profoundly religious. Sometimes it happens, but it doesn't happen automatically. But if you are a halachic man who is looking to activate those aspects, they can be very powerful. They can be very powerful indeed. Homo religiosus doesn't pay attention to that, and he finds that um, he finds that somehow intellectually bankrupt. Right? That here's this path that's open before us. That they just like cognitive man is seems seems. Uh, unaware of the transcendent homo religiosus uh, doesn't take advantage of the opportunities that are presented if he wasn't always covering his eyes trying to escape this world okay so thank you so much for that so just want to focus on one particular part of the es- uh, of his essay and uh, actually a footnote which is particularly interesting which is the fourth footnote um anyone who has the book it's um on the first page of the footnotes, it's on yeah. there. It's number four, and he has almost a mini essay unto itself where he rejects um, various um, Christian uh, theologians um, and he tries to develop his own idea. Could you explain a bit uh, us a bit about what he's doing in, in this footnote? Yes. Yeah, so the, the very well known we always call it we always call it a footnote, although technically it's an endnote. Um, but the very well known fourth footnote, uh, which goes on for four and a half pages in small uh, font, it really is an essay unto itself. And on occasion, when I've had the chance to teach uh, courses on Rabbi Soloveitchik's thought, as I do from time to time, I have sometimes begun, even even if we weren't going to be studying. Uh, halachic man, I have sometimes begun by studying this fourth footnote 
um, as a text unto itself, because in many ways, although it is a little dense and it makes reference to all types of different philosophical teachings and traditions, which may not be at everybody's fingertip, although, of course, we do live in a world where the collected wisdom of civilization is carried around in our pockets and presumably people can look things up. Um, but nevertheless, it really is this this uh, this long note is perhaps the best introduction to his to his philosophy of of, of religion, and it's so remarkable because it is so countercultural. He he's writing this in the 1940s. He's writing this at a time when religion. Uh, certainly in the United States, was uh, measured against American Protestantism. He's writing this essay, this defense of halacha, in 1944, in a world which thought that in a generation or so, orthodoxy would be out of business. If you were a gambling man, the safe money in mid-century America was to think in a generation or two, maybe there'd be a small enclave of Sabbath observers left in in Brooklyn, Uh, but basically it was over. Jews were moving out to the suburbs. In the decade following this, it would only become uh, much more exacerbated uh, after, after the war, during the baby boom. Communities were breaking up. Old norms were were crumbling. Synagogues, Orthodox synagogues, were tearing down their mechitzot, the traditional the traditional divider between men and women, which which was became a kind of symbol of of orthodoxies uh, in in the eyes of its critics. It became a symbol of, of orthodoxy's backwardness. Uh, the old the old shtibble, which was populated by maybe European immigrants, Yiddish speakers, you know, who still had the still had the mark of of Europe on them. Uh, this was different. We were going to build temples. We were going to build uh, synagogues. Uh, Principally, you know, by the the uh, the the liberal denominations, the conservative and reform movements, and everybody understood that uh, this was going to be the future of Judaism in America. The fact that it it didn't go that way, the fact that that uh, that orthodoxy was ascendant, uh, that orthodoxy today is stronger than it's ever been in the United States, both institutionally and in terms of numbers, with all of our problems, yes, 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 admitted. But the, I mean, just simply the number of institutions, the number of Jewish day schools, the number of children who are educated in those day schools, the numbers of synagogues, the the the, the amount of, uh, of students that come to study for a year or two, to study Torah and Judaism full-time for a year or two in Israel before returning to college campuses, the amount of Torah study and Jewish life and vibrancy on Jewish campuses, which decades ago would not allow Jews admittance. I had the occasion to uh, to lecture in, in Princeton University uh, shortly before Corona. Princeton University, where Jews were not allowed to walk the streets. I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. Uh, 
And now you walk around and you see boys with yarmulkes and their tzitzis hanging out and they go to Minyan in the morning and they learn Gemara before they go off to, 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 to their classes. It's a, it's a different world altogether. A kosher food, all of these, all of these things. These, that was unimaginable to the Americans, uh, the American Jews of the 1940s. And it seemed pretty safe to think that, uh, that, uh, orthodoxy was going to be a thing of the past. How is religion being marketed in mid-century America? The family that prays together stays together. That was the promise of American Protestantism. That was the promise of the best defense against all of the social ills. Not exactly in 1944, maybe slightly uh, later, but, uh, but the rise in divorce uh, children getting involved in all types of uh, behaviors that did not bring a lot of joy to their parents, and we leave it to the listener to imagine. The idea that religion and synagogue attendance and church attendance and membership would be a bulwark against that was an obvious uh, marketing. You can imagine the people sitting on Madison Avenue coming up with slogans to, 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 to market, to market uh, religion. What does Rabbi Soloveitchik do in this note? He turns the idea on its head. He says that religion is not the 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 popular. He, he writes here the popular ideology contends that the religious experience is tranquil and neatly ordered, tender and delicate. It's an enchanted stream for embittered souls and still waters for troubled spirits. The person who comes in weary from the field, from the battlefield and campaigns of life, from the secular domain, which is filled with doubts and fears, contradictions and refutations, clings to religion as does a baby to its mother. And then he says, that's all a bunch of bunk. That's not true. That's not what religion is. Religion does not give you all the answers. Religion gives you the questions that keep you up at night searching for answers. Now, I assume that there were people that read this when it first came out and said, the old man's off his rocker. He's going to scare people away. But in fact, it was the exact opposite. His candid admission of the demands that the spiritual life, that the halachic life, place upon the Jew only increased our integrity. He told it like it was. And because of that, people understood that this was something that was worth working for. It wasn't spoon-fed answers. It was a challenge. It was a it was a call. It was a it was a battle cry that we can make our lives meaningful by wrestling with these things. Right? He says that it is not uh, it is not uh, the the Hegelian synthesis. It is not the idea that we can work out every problem. But it's the Heraclitean struggle. Heraclitus was the Greek philosopher. I mean, he was the philosopher who said you can't step into the same river twice. But in this context, for the idea that everything comes about through struggle. Through struggle comes creativity. And this brings me to the other topic that we we didn't have enough time to discuss. 
the essay, The Halachic Man, I call it an essay, even though it's published in, in book form in, uh, in English, um, the, which is not so long. You can, you can read the whole Halachic Man in one or two sittings. The, if you know, minus the, minus the footnotes, the whole, uh, the whole thing is 137 pages long. Um, the second half of the essay, after the kind of uh, examination and presentation of these three ideal types and how they each differ from each other, who the cognitive man is, who the homo religiosus is, how they differ from each other, what their kind of merits and flaws are, uh, each unto his own and each relative to the other, and then the introduction of the halachic man and how he the comparison to each of those and what his his uh, virtue and and uh, and power above the others is. After that kind of uh, phenomenological presentation of these personalities, the shorter part of the essay, the part two of the of the book, which is really the more important part of the book, is entitled "His Creative Capacity: The Creative Capacity of the Halachic Man." The halachic man, because he is who he is, because he sees the world in the manner in which he sees it, as we described earlier, because he understands it's his task to 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 build heaven on earth, right? To bring spirituality here and embody it in this world through the halacha. That's a creative act. Now, the creativity that he's talking about here is a particular type of of intellectual creativity but his discussion of the value of creativity is is very important and it has ramifications throughout the entire body of his of his work and thought i would recommend a particular essay by uh by rabbi dr walter wurtzberger uh, who was my teacher at Yeshiva University, he was my esteemed predecessor as the longtime editor of the journal Tradition, an essay that he wrote called The Centrality of Creativity in the Thought of Rabbi Soloveitchik, which, uh, again, can be found in the archives of traditiononline.org. It's a very important essay that kind of unlocks and unpacks this theme of creativity, again, the intellectual halachic creativity of the halachic man, but why this was so central to Rabbi Soloveitchik. I think it also explains another thing about Rabbi Soloveitchik's biography and thought. Although he came from a family that was, shall we say, at best ambivalent to Zionism, and he himself began uh, aligned with a political camp that was not in any way uh, ardently Zionistic, he became very identified with religious Zionism uh, from the 19. 19- 40s and on, it's debatable exactly uh, when this turn came, uh, certainly after uh, World War II, after the Holocaust, but even beforehand, he had already begun to make this move towards a very definitively uh, self-identifying proud Zionist, uh, even though he only visited Israel once in 1935, even though he didn't uh, go off uh, to live in Israel those are things I discussed in, in other essays and other people have, have written on. Um, but I, I believe that, uh, that part, of his, part of his affinity uh, towards, towards Zionism is rooted in this idea of the creativity. 
Zionism, the return of the Jewish people to their land, the revitalization of Jewish life and learning and society in the land of Israel, the establishment of a sovereign Jewish state after 2,000 years. This was the most creative national undertaking that the Jewish people had done maybe since the composition of the Mishnah or the Talmud. What else had the Jewish people done? Not individuals. There were always creative Jewish individuals. Maimonides was a very creative Jewish individual, but he was a man. There were great Jewish poets. They were creative. They were individuals. But as a nation, to be creative on the scale of state building, I think it was something that must have just so enchanted him, so fascinated him that he couldn't stand uh, he couldn't stand aside. He couldn't identify. He couldn't not. Uh, he couldn't help but identify uh, with it. So you see that there are all these very interesting ways that you know, kind of abstract philosophical positions have interesting ramifications. Admittedly, this is speculation on on my part although I'm convinced that I'm right. Um, you see the interaction of thought and philosophy, of biography and, and uh, of, 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 of thought and philosophy together with, uh, with biography and actual, actual positions that one takes, the stakes uh, that one takes uh, in, in the real world. That, you know, it, it proves that, you know, although philosophy is, is abstract, really there's nothing more practical there's nothing more practical than philosophy because it guides us to positions uh, or it ought to guide us to positions in how we act, in how we live, in how we think, in how we, what positions we take vis-a-vis uh, -vis others, vis-a-vis uh, -vis political questions, uh, societal questions, right? If we're doing philosophy right, it's extremely practical. So those are some of the themes that uh, play themselves out through Halachic Man. But of course, there's so much more to this, uh, to this book than we've discussed here. And uh, there, there are some very many good resources out there uh, to help the, the novice reader find his way into the book. Uh, you know, many people who have, you know, cracked their head trying to go through it, um, uh, you know, are aided by today, you know, all of the resources that are available on the internet. Uh, when I first encountered the work uh, as a as a teenager on uh, on my on my copy of the book, uh, I got to the to the first page, and uh, right there on the first page, you encountered the word ontology. Well, I didn't know what ontology was uh, back then, so I, uh, I I had a dictionary, and a dictionary helps. Today, there are even better resources. You know, you can make your way through it. Things that are worth knowing are worth, are worth working for. I think that's, you know, one of the messages that you pick up if you digest the fourth, uh, the fourth note. So, uh, so we recommend it. We recommend people make their way through Rabbi Soloveitchik's uh, philosophical writings, his rabbinic writings, his Torah writings, uh, of course, are also... Um, spiritually profitable and it's good to spend some time 
uh, with the different genres in which he wrote so that you get a kind of sense of the, the man in full. There are people who, who I think, uh, see or appreciate one angle of this very, very multifaceted personality and are kind of missing a sense of, of the whole. Okay, that's excellent, Rabbi Sachs. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast today. That was really fascinating. And um, I hope our readers, uh, our listeners, sorry, have um, you know been introduced to some of the main themes. And as Rabbi Sachs says, I, we, we highly recommend Halakhic Kaman. Um, and, and please God, we will all grow philosophically and in our Torah lives through learning it. Thank you so much, Rabbi Sachs. Thank you. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you for all your work you're doing in your teaching and with this podcast and helping us all understand these things more deeply.